And we're back with another exciting episode of Hollywood Bound and Down. I'm your host, Joshua Caldwell. We've been gearing up for the festival run of Layover, and I wanted to encourage you to visit layoverfilm.com to find out which festivals we'll be screening at, how to buy tickets, watch our trailer, and more. We're super excited for SIF and Dances with Films, and I hope to see some of you there. And now, this week's guest. Jay Bushman is a writer, producer, transmedia showrunner, multi-platform story evangelist, and Emmy winner for the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. You know that little show on YouTube that took the internet by storm last year? The adaptation of Pride and Prejudice? No? Then you are missing out. More than 100 episodes, more than 40 million views, the Lizzie Bennett Diaries redefined digital media in a huge way, and one that has yet to be replicated on the same scale. I was fortunate to work with Jay on Welcome to Sanditon, the series he wrote and executive produced and I directed on. An innovator and leader in the transmedia community, he pushes the boundaries of next generation entertainment. One publication even named him the Epic Poet of Twitter. An amazing list of projects and companies on his resume, I think it's best to hear Jay tell it in his own poetic words. So let's grab a drink with Jay Bushman. We are drinking what? This is a Famille Perrin Cote d'Arone Reserve. I think it's six ninety nine at Trader Joe's. Nice. Yeah, I've never had that one. I usually four is probably my max. Yeah. So you're really yeah. treating you're treating me to. I go out on a limb here. Yeah, yeah. It's um a couple of months ago there was this great little infographic going around. I don't know really anything about red wine, but there was this great little infographic going around saying. This, these are the red wines. Like, do you want this? Then have that. Do you want this flavor? Then have that. And so one of them was like peppery and dry Cote d'Arone. And right. we were like, oh, Cote d'Arone. We'll try that. And so we bought we bought this and it was like, damn, this is good. Nice. Yeah. Was that a Trader Joe's infographic? or No, it, was, it wasn't. Okay. It was, you know, one of the wonderful things you get from Tumblr. Nice. God, I love Tumblr. There's this just... Wipe that edge. Yeah. I am uh, I'm a fan of Trader Joe wines. I mean, I really, you know, you get some really good, yeah. inexpensive stuff. I remember, are you a fan of uh, Gary Vaynerchuk at all? I know his work. Yeah. 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 But I, I a couple years wine, ago, my buddy yeah. and I got into the whole wine thing with him, and we yeah. were, like, tasting dirt and, like, trying <laughs> all this stuff. And, yeah. And, but what, what I appreciated about it was, I mean, what I like about him is he's kind of just a dude, mm-hmm. like, who drinks wine, but it was really about... You don't need to go for yeah. very expensive yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's kind of what tastes good yeah. to you. And there's a plenty of, I mean, that's the great thing is there's like so many options. You and know? it's developing your own taste rather right. than like, well, they say it's charcoal, but I don't taste any charcoal. Yeah. And coffee's kind I, of the, the same licorice? way. And I, you know, when I was in college, I worked in a coffee, uh, a coffee place, a roasting uh, place. And I still remember like, it was like, I was there for maybe five months or so. And and before I actually could taste the difference, right? Between like, oh, this is Guatemalan. Oh, <laughs> this is Kenyan. Oh, I can taste it now. Yeah. Like, like you just sort of get used to it. Very yeah. cool. Cheers. Cool. Cheers. There go. Try it. That's good. I uh, my what. My wife's pregnant, and so I've sort of stayed away. Like we, mm-hmm. we what we would do is go get like a Trader Joe's pizza and then a mm-hmm. bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. And I haven't had red wine in a while, and I've stayed away from just buying it for myself because, yeah. you know, 
kind of have to. It's nice to sort of yeah. abstain if she has to, but yeah. uh, so I haven't had it in a while. So thanks for my pleasure treating me. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for coming over. Thanks for doing this. I think sure. that uh, you know I'm really excited to to have you on because I think you're. What's cool is sort of presenting both the more traditional writing path mm-hmm. that that I'm sure you participated in, but also the sort of growing transmedia new media, whatever you decide you want to call yeah. it, um, mm-hmm. but how that is playing into specifically the projects you've, work, you've worked on, but also just, you know, a growing sort of part of the industry. Yeah. And I, I mean, for me, it was actually a very clear divide where I got totally fed up with the traditional path and, and like, li- like it literally happened on a day. <laughs> Like the moment happened where I was like, ah, this right. is, I can't do this. And, and, you know, took a hard left turn into, well, I don't know, but you know, we'll try something and we'll yeah. see, we'll see if it works. And that was, I think in 2007. Okay. Um, and, and since then I've just been like experimenting with stuff and it's, it's finally seeming to pay off. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Well, we're definitely going to get to that. Yes. Um, the, to start it off, uh, the question is. Why writing? Um, why writing? Because it was actually, it actually took me a long time to discover that that's what it was for me. I, when I grew up, I always thought I wanted to be a director. Um, I started watching movies when I was really, really young. I was probably way too young to be watching all the Stanley Kubrick movies I was watching. Um, and so stuff like that, that yeah. stuff goes over your head as an adult. Like yeah. I'm sure you're sure you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, you're like 12 trying to watch Barry Lyndon. It's not <laughs> quite, you know, I think it's quite what, what Stanley intended. Right. But, um, but, and because everything was about directors and because I'm a child of, of the star Wars generation and, you know, you think of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and these great directors it was always, oh, I want to be a director. I want to be a director. And and I still remember the first movie that, you know, I, I watched movies voraciously. But the first time I ever really started thinking, not just of, of the director, not just as the guy who has his name in the biggest letters, who like makes all the decisions, but somebody who was actually a stylist or, or, or the first time I noticed a movie that looked different from every everything else and felt different from everything else. Um, it was the color of money, hmm. and for a really really long time, I thought that it was Scorsese and his directing that I was responding to. And only after a really 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 long time, and then going back years later and watching it, watching it again, did I realize that I was it wasn't Scorsese's directing; it was the Richard Price screenplay. Hmm. that that really kind of made an impression on me. Um, so I had always thought I was going to be a director and I said I wanted to be a director and I went to college uh, at a school that didn't have a film program. Um, they had some like criticism classes, but um, so I became a theater major okay. um, and I studied acting and directing and I took all the film classes that I could uh, I could take. And then uh, and that was uh, in Washington, D.C., and then when I finished that, I went to film school in uh, North Carolina, in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And I 
took the, I was in the MFA film program there, but they had a really great theater program. So I took all the theater classes I could while I was there. So I kept kind of like bouncing back and forth between these two things. Um, but I still, you know, thought of myself as a director and I wrote scripts because I needed to direct something. Right. And that's kind of how I started. And then I got really into um, the British filmmaker, Mike Lee. Okay. And his method, which right. is is Lee doesn't write screenplays. He he gets a group of actors together and he creates characters with them individually. And then he starts putting these characters and scenes together and improvising relationships and slowly building relationships between all these characters until he has a thematic idea of what he wants the movie to be. And then they improvise their way into a finished screenplay. And so I did a couple of projects like that um in film school and i did a, a feature for my thesis that was built um on that model and um when i left film school and i moved to new york and i uh was again writing stuff writing some uh, stage plays and some short films for myself to direct and started to realize that i was enjoying i was enjoying the writing a lot more than I was enjoying the directing. Yeah. Um, I really, I, I discovered at some point that I just, I wasn't having a good time Yeah. as a director. You kind of have to, as a director, you kind of have to really love the difficulty of that process because yeah. you're constrained by time, you're constrained by money, like, you know, and, and you have to sort of, in a, I think that's actually a lot of the times why people move away from directing is simply mm -hmm. they just, like you said, you kind of just don't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it at all. And, and, you know, I would have these, uh, when I was film shooting my, um, my thesis film in school, um, we'd, we'd shoot all day long, we'd go home, go to sleep. And in my dreams, all night long, we were on set, and I was directing the crew, filming me sleeping, and like <laughs> so, like and every, every so often, I'd be like, "Wait, no, wait, I'm supposed to be asleep. Let's let's knock it. We'll we'll get yeah. the rest of this tomorrow." But then we would just keep going. That would be my dream all night long, and then I would wake up and then have to go back to set, and like it was day in day out for like two and a half weeks, yeah. and I was like, "This is maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing." Yeah. Um, I had, I, yeah. I would have, I don't anymore. I've gotten over it, but I would have dreams where I was on set directing in the middle while we were in, I would be on production and something mm -hmm. and we'd be, I'd come home and I would dream about not getting the shots mm -hmm. or something's wrong with the footage. I would yeah. dream about that stuff and I would yeah. just toss and turn and yeah. stress. And you, you know, that so you know, it's that kind of sleeping where you wake up and you know that you had, you had a dream where you were running or you were doing something really yeah. active. Yeah. And you're just either your mind. Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, and it's the beginning of the 20 hour day. Yeah, Let's exactly. go for it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so then what I what I started to slowly realize is that all this kind of Mike Lee improv, Mike Lee style improv stuff I was doing was really a convoluted way to avoid <laughs> writing a screenplay. <laughs> That's the thing is a lot of yeah. people, a lot of people go, oh, I'll improv it. Yeah. Because then I don't have to, I don't have to write it. Yeah. But they yeah. don't understand that you're essentially then you're you're writing. Yeah. You're just not typing yeah. the things down. Yeah. It's just I you're mean, writing within yeah. a group of people. Yeah. Over it's months. A, it's a really fun method. And I, I, you know, I wouldn't mind trying something like that again now, like years later, having done a whole lot of other stuff. I think it might be interesting to try a project yeah. like that again. 
But I did reach a point where I was like, wow, I'm going through a lot of effort, so I just don't sit down in front of a blank screen and start writing. So yeah. why don't I try that? Right. And so I started doing that and um, moved to L.A. around that time. Um, uh, took some screenwriting classes, was working on a bunch of specs, feature specs and, and, and TV specs. And... Um, I'm very into being, maybe it's because of my theater uh, background, or maybe it's because I watched too much um, Orson Welles and Kenneth Branagh when I was growing up, but I'm really into adaptation. I love adaptations. I love taking classics and updating them and, and, and modernizing, modernizing and recontextualizing, just doing stuff like taking classic works and, and doing stuff with them. So most of my projects are either modern or adaptations of classics or, you know, reimaginings of classics or um, originals that work on themes that kind of reference um, mm. um, classic stories. Right. And so, like, I've been working on this kind of this one story world for many different versions of this over the years. It was a short film and then it was a... a it was a short play, then it was a short film, and then I've got a full-length stage version of this. I've got a script for a full-length feature version of this, which is a uh, a, a fictional biography of Orson Welles, um, as if, as a young man, he sold his soul to the devil for fame and fortune. Okay. And it's filtered through the prism of the uh, the stage productions, the stages that he worked on okay. over the course of his life. So they're very much about like recreating these classic theatrical experiences so while it's an original story there's all this stuff woven in and out like references to right classic things so i this is just that's just the world i like working in Hmm. um and so i had spent um a couple years working on a screenplay adaptation a modern uh adaptation of the shakespeare play coriolanus um and you know Spent a long time on it, just researching the world, doing the, doing, you know, doing the modernization, writing seven, eight, nine drafts of the, of the script, taking it out, like trying to show it to people. And the thing I learned is that if you ever want to get laughed out of a pitch meeting, say the word Coriolanus. <laughs> it's pretty much guaranteed to stop all conversation. Um, and, and so it was like, all right, fine. Like I'm done with that. I'll stick that in the drawer. Yeah. Like, let me find something a little more commercial. I know Moby Dick. <laughs> so I spent a while working on, uh, I have this, uh, uh this, uh, epic sci-fi adaptation of Moby Dick. Okay. And I spent a long time kind of doing the adaptation and doing the research and building the world and like writing the 75 page James Cameron style scriptment yeah. for the whole story. And I sat down to write the screenplay. And this is that day that I was I was I was talking about before, that, that fateful day in 2007, whenever that was. I sat down to write the screenplay and I could not get past the first page because I was like, nobody is going to read this. I'm going to spend the next two years of my life on this, at least, and no one is going to open the cover page. And if they do, they're not going to read past page five. And I can't do this again. There has to be a different way. There has to be another way to do this. And this was right around the time that Jonathan Colton, the musician, was getting 
uh, a lot of notoriety for releasing his music online and giving it directly to his audience. And writers like Cory Doctorow were putting their short stories directly online and giving them straight to the audience. And I started thinking, how could how could I do that? Like like, and so I literally like closed final draft, opened a blank word document, and just started typing like, this sucks. I hate this. They, they, I don't want to do this. You know, how can I figure out something else? Like Jonathan Colton's doing this, Cory Doctor's, and I'm just like stream of consciousness, just like getting all this shit out onto the page of why I was frustrated and what I didn't want to do. And all of a sudden I found myself writing like this manifesto of using the internet as a dramatic storytelling medium and just creating stuff directly for the audience using different types of, of web media. Because you can't upload a screenplay to right. the internet because nobody yeah. wants to read that. That's not an experience. So how do you create a dramatic experience? And start like, oh, you can use like social media and use websites and all this stuff. All these techniques from uh, that I learned from uh, being a, a, a fan of and being uh, uh, engaged in the world of alternate reality games. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got really heavily into those in... I was a player of, of what's considered the first uh, alternate reality game, which was didn't even really have a name. It's it's uh, sometimes called the AI game. It's sometimes called the Beast. Hmm. Um, but it was a campaign for the Steven Spielberg movie AI in right. 2001. And I got heavily involved as a player of that and sort of came out of that being like, wow, this is amazing. Like this, there's, there's something really cool about how this is, you can use this to tell stories, but the ARGs that came afterwards, there were, I mean, there were some really great ones, but there were a lot of not really great ones. And, and it got kind of tiring after a while because it split very quickly between the story elements and the game elements and the puzzle elements. And I didn't care about the puzzles at all. I just wanted the story. And so I'm writing my manifesto here and thinking, wait, you could, do like an ARG, but don't do the game part. Just use all these techniques of, you know, using websites and email and and, and text messages and Twitter and, and whatever, and use that as the storytelling mm -hmm. conduit. And so I wrote out at the end of this document, I was like, boom, here's a slate of five projects. Bam, 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 bam. Like each one slightly like getting bigger and more complex and, and, and larger. And, um, Leading up to one day, hopefully, this giant Moby Dick idea that hmm. I've been wanting to do. And so I just started doing that. Hmm. And so the first one was a, uh, a I took another Melville, uh, a short story, a Melville short story, and did a sci-fi adaptation of that and set it in the same universe mm -hmm. as the Moby Dick idea and wrote it for Twitter. And so I it's basically a novella for Twitter. I published it at the end of 2007 um, over the course of about four months. Hmm. Uh, it was one of the earliest Twitter fiction experiments. Um, and it was fine. It was interesting. Like yeah. uh, not a ton of people saw it, but enough people did. And it was like, all right, we tried something. And the second one was I took, a, a, there's this famous book of uh, poetry called Spoon River Anthology, which is, it's taught a lot in high schools. It's used a lot in acting classes. It's, it's a compendium of 212 one page poems. Hmm. Each poem is the voice 
of a person who lived in this fictional town of Spoon River, Illinois, in the late 19th century, in the mid to late 19th century. And they are now speaking from beyond the grave about what their life was like. Hmm. And there's 212 of them. And so as you start to read them, you start to see how they connect to each other. Yeah. And each one of them tells an angle of a larger story from their own perspective. And sometimes they contradict each other. And sometimes they, you know, you can piece together the larger narratives. And there are about 12 sort of meta narratives woven all the way through it. So I did a modern adaptation of that. And I set it as a group blog. Um, and so it was the Spoon River Met blog. Um, and that was cool and that was fun and then you know the third and fourth projects on my list were Dracula and Pride and Prejudice and so I'd spent several years developing a uh, a modern adaptation of Pride and Prejudice and like starting to try and like attract some investment or you know put a team together and and everybody I talked to and every time I like would bring it out or bring it up in, in meetings or whatever in conversations I'd hear there's no audience for that there's, you know, who wants to see that? Like, uh, my favorite one is, yeah, girls don't use the internet that much. Like, <laughs> and, you know, I just kept like hitting a lot of roadblocks. And, and, and also, you know, and, and to be, to be, you know, to be fair, I had, I, I hadn't cracked it. Right. Like, I, I felt like I had some interesting stuff in it, but, but I was missing a central thing. Yeah. And, and so at some point I just kind of put it in the drawer. And put it away. Um, I got to do a version of the Dracula idea I wanted to do uh, when I worked for a company called Fourth Wall Studios a couple of years ago. We did a um, we did the pilot episode of a series, but we didn't get to do any more of them. But it was uh, a, a steampunk adaptation of Dracula. Okay, um, it was called Airship Dracula, and we did one episode of that, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and the fifth project on the list was Moby Dick, and so I've done. Four of the five, right? Um, that I wrote on that day on that document in 2007. Um, so it's just been like I don't even know where it came from, it just yeah. sort of like a plan appeared, and I've just been following it ever since. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, jumping back, mm -hmm. you where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, suburban New York, okay, whereabouts uh, Rockland County. It's yeah. about my wife's from Rockland. Oh, really? She's uh, uh. New City, Bardonia. Oh, yeah. That's right. Now I remember we, yeah, we yeah. talked about that. Yeah, I grew up in Spring Valley, New Hempstead. It's yeah. like 10 minutes away from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's about 20 minutes outside of uh, Manhattan. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in suburban New York. Um, the funny part is they always say upstate, and it's not upstate. Like they do, they like I say, oh, yeah, it's upstate because it's like outside of Manhattan, but it's that's like, an ongoing, like you said, 20 a, minutes beyond. Yeah, that, that's an ongoing uh, sort of. Uh, Sore point yeah. for me. It's like it's not upstate. <laughs> we I don't, don't care what like, you say. We don't talk like that. Yeah. yeah. So you grew up there, lived there. Yeah, pretty much. You know, lived there um, up until uh, going to college. Uh, went to when I was living there. The public high schools were really good. Mm -hmm. I don't think they are anymore, from what I hear. I don't know. I could be wrong. If there's anyone listening who like is still teaching there, Clarkstown, um, South. I went to Ramapo, Ramapo okay. Senior High School. Um, and at the time I was there, we, I remember being told, and this could be completely not true, but I remember being told that we were the public high school in the U S that offered the most advanced placement credits in the country. Hmm. Um, 
So I graduated high school with 40 college credits. I don't <laughs> like, I didn't try. It just sort of happened. Right. You almost couldn't, um, you, had to avoid, yeah. you had to purposely avoid yeah. taking an AP class or something. But, uh, but I, I mean, I was fortunate in that, in that as I, and I didn't really have a good time in high school. Um, and most of the people who I, who I knew and who I'm still in touch with also didn't have a really good time yeah. in high school. But I, I was fortunate in that there, a lot of creative people went to my high school. So we were all sort of miserable together or adjacent to each other. Or right. we could, you know, commiserate yeah. later on. Um, yeah. And were you growing up, were you, I mean, you know, were you, where, where did you put, end up putting a lot of your time? Were you watching a lot of movies? Were you watching, was television a lot of movie, thing? Were you watched reading? a lot of TV, read a lot. Yeah. Pretty much read everything I get my hands on. Um, my my parents tell me stories about like remembering, like bringing me to the the library, the Finkelstein Memorial Library, when I'm like <laughs> in sixth grade, like checking out like twelve Shakespeare plays. Yeah. Like I don't remember this, and I don't remember like if I read them, I probably didn't understand any of them. Yeah, but you know, like hmm, okay. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, these are so words on a page. I just I read a lot. I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy watched a lot of tv um and it's funny though i know i remember watching a ton of tv but i don't really remember what any of it was hmm. like and was it was there an really awareness of what the tv i know you spoke earlier about yeah. sort of recognizing directors in the star wars generation and, yeah. and, and kubrick and so was there just yeah. a very early awareness of uh just digging a hole is there a very early awareness of uh movies as a creative entity yeah. as opposed to yeah that was what my my family did my 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 family would take us to the movies like pretty much every week digging on the dog escape tunnel yeah yeah sorry um, that's color to these things yeah, yeah 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 that was what my family did we they would take us to the movies almost every week i would say um and then you know uh I remember we we had cable really early, so like HBO was like a huge a thing. thing. Yeah. Um. My my parents were uh, teachers. Um. The first part of my of my childhood, and so I remember my dad at one point brought home a VCR from school that we had. It was a three quarter inch VCR. Oh, wow. and my sister and I would tape. MTV. We would tape hours and hours and hours of MTV. And then, like, when MTV was showing things we didn't want to watch, we would put our tapes in of MTV and just watch it again and again <laughs> yeah. and again. Um, so, yeah, a ton of MTV. Um, you know, going to the movies all the time. Then, you know, going to the video store and renting a bunch of movies. Like, that yeah. was always the thing. Even to this day, like, my parents come to visit or I go to visit them. It's like, oh, what do you want to do? Let's go to the movies. Like, yeah. it's kind of just what we always did. Yeah. Yeah. Same way for me. I mean, I we would go to we'd go see movies on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. You know, and my yes. wife my wife is like, like yeah. abhorrent. Like, <laughs> what are you talking? I'm like, well, that was the tradition. Like, yeah. it was just the four of us. Yeah. Christmas Day, you get your presents open. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, around one o'clock, you go out and see the you know because it was always a new release yeah. that day, and like that was the yeah. thing that we we did. But yeah, my see, dad was always really into movies, so we'd end up yeah. he'd take us. We'd see terrible things and good things and yeah christmas day was always a huge you know the, the the movie event of the season yeah um you know what are we gonna go see um a lot of discussion a lot of plans sometimes more than one movie in a day um <laughs> i remember we were actually we were trying to figure this out not too long ago 
on my birthday in 1989, my family took me to see three movies in one day. <laughs> um, we were trying to remember what the middle one was. The first one was we saw um, Dead Poets Society and Do the Right Thing. And I don't remember what the middle one was. Would it have been like uh, Last Crusade or like an Indiana Jones? I don't know. Because that was 89, been. wasn't it? It might have been. It might have been. Like we actually went to Wikipedia and one. tried to like figure out, well, release dates and what yeah, could yeah. it have been. But I, the, the other thing I remember is that two days before that, we went to see a, a premiere screening of The Abyss mm. at Radio City Music Hall. And my parents bought the tickets and they messed up. And they thought they had gotten, they got row BB, which they thought was row 28. And it was row two. <laughs> and if you remember the abyss, there's that great scene uh, towards the end where like the, like Ed Harris is like going down the side and there's yeah. like this little light on the corner, like going down and the rest of the screen is dark. Like yeah. imagine that on the screen at Radio City Music Hall and you're in the second row. It's like. <laughs> holy crap like you're gonna get swallowed by the darkness yeah um yeah that's that's incredible um yeah that's like sitting in front row at the cinerama dome or something yeah. like that you're yeah. just like it's, it's enveloped in it yeah um and so as you got into high school and, and you had mentioned you were thinking about directing i yeah. mean i guess you know what i mean i guess there was vhs at the time but was it where was the practical? Like, was there a practical? There like, wasn't. Okay, how do I how do I do this? How do I? Like, I'm in this town. Yeah. How do I get to that place? Yeah, there there was very little practical. Um, I think at one point in one class, like I think it was just about the era when like camcorders were starting to be inexpensive enough that you could own them, but we didn't own one because right. it was still too expensive and. And if I had owned one, I probably would have been, you know, not allowed to use it because yeah. I, would, I would break it or something. <laughs> I don't know. So there wasn't a whole lot of practical. Um, there was a lot of thinking about it. And I remember at one point in high school, I had some kind of class that allowed us to shoot some video. And I, I, I started editing it. And that mm. I really got into. Like VCR and, to VCR? Yeah, VCR to VCR editing. Yeah, classic. Um, and, yeah. And, um that was fun. Um, but yeah, there, you know, there was very little to do, but I was, I always guess I always thought, oh, I'm going to go to film school. That's what I want to do. And um, my parents had sort of laid down the law that um, I needed to get a scholarship to college or else I was going to go to uh, SUNY Binghamton. Uh, State University of New York in Binghamton, which was a very good school, but it was a state school and it was in Binghamton, New York, <laughs> right. which, you know, not a lot going on yeah. in Binghamton, New York. And so I, my job was to get a full ride somewhere. And my first choice was USC. And I was sitting at dinner one night and I got a phone call from the admissions office at USC and they were they were really, really happy to let me know that they were awarding me a half scholarship. And I was like, I can't take it. I, I just can't. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up going to George Washington University in D.C. Um, and why George Washington, out of curiosity? Um, I actually came down to two places. It was either going to be um, GW or Boston University. Okay. Um, I'd applied to both. I'd gotten into both. I'd gotten full tuition scholarships um, from both. 
And I just liked Washington better than I liked Boston. Sorry, Boston. Um, <laughs> I've been back to Boston since, and I, yeah. I've liked it a lot more. Um, but but I just I enjoyed Washington. Um, it's a beautiful city. But it wasn't. Um, it's not a film school. Like it doesn't have a film no. Program, it's not a so film school. It? But at that point, I um, I don't think I actually like that. Like I I kept saying, oh, I'll go to film school. But that was sort of the impractical version. So it was more like, oh, I'll go somewhere and I'll get like a liberal arts thing and I'll take as many film classes as I can. Yeah. Um, and that liberal arts education is really yeah. serving us so well. Yeah, isn't it? it's awesome. <laughs> um, and I just like DC, but I actually I was intending to be a political science major. Okay, and so that makes sense. DC was, you know, GW is is you know really really great school for that. And my first year there, I hated all my poli sci classes, and I auditioned for one of the plays and got cast and had a great time. And so I switched my major to theater, um, which was. A really, it's actually one of the best things I've ever done because mm. I was one of those students that I could take tests. I was really good at tests. Like I could speed through homework. I, you know, I I knew how the game was played and I could play the game without trying too hard. So I didn't really work very hard, and I still did really well, and and you know, developed a lot of bad habits. Mm. And I switched majors to theater to a, 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 a discipline where none of my tricks worked. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden I went from someone who, you know, could be one of the top three or four students in a class without even trying to being pretty much at the bottom of all my classes. And that was sort of a rude awakening and it kind of sucked. Um, but, I'm, but I was really glad I did it because it forced me to work. It forced me to take risks it forced me out of my comfort zone um and so i studied acting i wasn't very good um i enjoyed it it was fun uh but i wasn't very good um i started getting into directing and started to learn what directing actually meant Mm -hmm. instead of just like the guy who gets to be right all the time yeah um like you know what the actual job of a director was um and that was fun um, I had a great time. I, I met a lot of really great people. I did a lot of fun shows. Um, and uh, yeah. And was there at this time was there still consideration in terms of film school? Because eventually you did get you did go to the film program, which we'll get yeah. to. But yeah. you know, and was it still end up in LA type of like? I guess what's I don't going really through think you, I like is it kind of like you know, figured out? I, yeah, I wasn't thinking that far ahead. I was like. I think I was still just sort of like, I'm away from home. Yeah. This is College. Awesome. Um, but my, after my second year, the summer after my second year, I, I went home for the summer hmm. and I was kind of bored. And so I started a theater company. I got my sister and all of her. My sister, I have a, a sister who's about four years younger than I, I am. So she was in her junior year, I guess her junior year of high school. And she was a, you know, theater kid. And so I just got her and all of her theater friends to like be in these shows. And so hmm. like we, we produced a couple of shows and, um, and that was fun. And that was like, ah, yes, you know, you can just make shit happen. Yeah. Like, you don't have to wait around for somebody to like give you an opportunity. Yeah. You can just get really bored, get really <laughs> antsy and say, fucking, I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. Um, um, really funny story. We, so we did these two plays. We did, um, um, this is a test. 
um, which is uh, uh, I'm, and I don't remember the names of the authors, but one of the but one of the two plays we did was This Is a Test. The other one was The Actor's Nightmare by Christopher Durang. But This Is a Test was like it came in like a Scholastic magazine. It was like done by a lot, a lot of high schools. It's pretty funny. It's actually really well written. Years later, I'm living in L.A. I'm writing at um, the coffee shop on Beverly uh, Insomnia. Insomnia. I'm writing in Insomnia. I start chatting with the guys sitting at the table next to me. One of them wrote, this is a test. <laughs> I was like, damn. Like, <laughs> wow. Never expected that. Did you that tell him? Yeah. Oh, totally told him. I was like, your show is the first play I ever directed. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It was really exciting. That was, that was a nice moment. Um, but yeah, but so I sort of kind of got this bug of like, nobody wants to do what I want to do. So I'm going to have to do it myself. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of been my MO ever since. Like, yeah. and it starts somehow mostly because maybe I don't explain what I want to do very well at first. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, just fuck it. I'll do you it. Do and it. I'll show and then, it to yeah, you. And then, you, you know, it. you see it. Um, and yeah, so um Went back to, to, to college, went back to GW. Um, and then something went, something happened um, where suddenly it was a financial issue in the family. And suddenly I couldn't afford to stay in school. Hmm. Um, and because I had graduated high school with all those college credits, we were able to work it out so that I could graduate a year early. So hmm. all of a sudden, like I was going back to school for my junior year and, and we could only afford one more year of school. Yeah. So all of a sudden my junior year of college became my senior year of college. And all of a sudden I'm like, holy crap, like I'm graduating. Like what yeah. the hell am I going to do? <laughs> I expected at least two more years of yeah. buffer to yeah. figure this out. I expected out. I had some time to like, you know, play around some more before I had to figure out what my next step was. Yeah. So I was like, You're like, oh, I'm gonna be an adult. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I guess I'll apply to film school because I don't know what the hell else to do. Yeah. But I got gotten such a late jump on it. I missed the deadlines for USC, for UCLA, for NY. I missed I missed out on like all the big ones. Right. Um. So I I mean I did my research like in a week. Like I was like, crap! I gotta make this issue now. I gotta yeah. see the GREs now. Like 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 I don't have time to to. This is still pre-internet, so it's not yeah. like you can just like oh s- spend some time surfing around and you know, figure some stuff out. Um, so somewhat randomly, I you know applied to a bunch of different film schools, um, and I ended up getting a, a, a graduate assistantship at North Carolina Greensboro. Is um, that the the North Carolina School of the not Arts? The North Carolina okay. School of the Arts. North Carolina School of the Arts started their film school the year I started okay. film school. And they had $20 million. And we had three Bolexes. <laughs> and yeah, there was... I spent three and a half years in Greensboro. Greensboro is a lovely city. I met some really wonderful people. But it was not really a good place for me. Hmm. Um. I didn't feel like I fit in. Um, there was a lot of culture shock. Um, um, it was not the most comfortable place for me. I don't want to go so far as to say I regret going there because who the hell knows? Yeah. 
how things would have been different. But yeah. But if I, I, I wonder if I'd had that extra year to think about and make plans, whether or not I would have done something different. Yeah. Um, whether or not I would have just come out to LA, whether or not, you know, I would have gone home to New York. Um, I don't know. Um, but you know, UNCG at the time that I was there, um, they had a very heavy focus on documentary and very, very strong. There were some really, really talented sort of avant-garde, um, filmmakers there, Hmm. but there wasn't a whole lot in the way of narrative. Um, I showed up now I've graduated college a year early and I've gone directly to grad school where most of the people that I was in classes with were significantly older than I was, had gone out in the world for a little bit and have come back to school. I'm, I think 20 when I start (laughs) and I show up and I'm like, we're in film school. We're going to make movies. It's going to be awesome. And they looked at me like I was insane. Yeah. And, and that really never stopped. And to the point where like, I wanted to shoot a thesis, uh, shoot a feature for my thesis. And I had to fight every step of the way to do it because they didn't want me to do it. They thought it was too much. And I was like, I got free equipment and free actors. Why wouldn't I do this? (laughs) Yeah. Like it was, it was a struggle. So grad school was a struggle for me. And, um, and I finally finished and, uh, moved home to New York. Because I was just like, I need to go back to a place where I know how things I need to work. get regrounded. Yes. In this so world. I moved back to New York and I moved into the city and, uh, you know, spent about five or six years doing the, you know, I did that thing. God, this is what, <laughs> this is what the nineties were like kids. Um, you graduate film school and they say, all right, you get the, you get the NY 411 book and you go through and you write letters to everyone. Yep. And include your resume and tell them you're graduating film school and you're moving to the city and you need a <laughs> job. And I spent, I think I sent maybe 150 of those letters. I got one reply. Wow. And I got that job <laughs> as a like so assistant mailroom guy <laughs> at a post house. But it was another one of those things where like, I'm like, hey, I got a job. I'm making like no money. I can barely afford this apartment that, you know, my parents have to subsidize me to like... Like, you think it's, like, it's... Where were you living? The first place I got was uh, in Alphabet City, um, 2nd and Avenue C. And this is before it was gentrified. They sold heroin from the front of my building. Um, uh, Important safety tip here, kids. If you have to live on a drug block, live on a heroin block. Because they're just too tired to cause any problems. Like, 6th Street was a crack block. You never wanted to go near there because people were all hyped up and wanted to start shit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was it was pretty rough. Um, but, you know, you know, it's bad, like, it's bad now. Like, nobody can afford to live in New York. But but even then, it was like I, I had to have, I had to get supplemented by my parents or yeah. else I would not have been able to, to stay there. Um, so I'm working this, like, minimum wage, nothing job. Um, and they're like, yeah, if you, you know, you work through lunch and you stay late every night and you shadow people, maybe in five years you can be an assistant editor. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Like, that's great if that's, you know, your goal, but, but that's not what I want to do. And so I kind of bounced around in a couple of 
post house jobs. And then I fell into somewhat by accident. There's this whole world. I don't know if they're still there, but in the nineties, there was this whole world of temp jobs on wall street where every investment bank had squads and squads and rooms and floors of temps hmm. who would type up the documents. They would make the presentations. They would, you know, draft memos. Like they were these big, almost like call centers where like some like low level analysts would come in, like drop a job off. They'd like give it to whoever was up next. They'd take it. They'd like type for some shit. Uh, for New York, it was relatively good pay. Um, and it was relatively steady work. Hmm. And everyone I worked with was insane. And I loved it. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was this sort of like... Was it this, a bunch of like just hodgepodge of people from all, all walks of life? It was just... all these artists. It was all these actors and musicians and like playwrights. And, right. and like this sort of merry pirate band. And was this all um, on... Were, were they into computers yet? Or was it still like the electric typewriter? just start... Yeah. Thing? No, we were we were work processing. That's for okay. sure. But... 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 It was mostly like, so we'd like go like see someone's show, like they were doing somewhere down in the Lower East Side. I actually ran into one of the guys who uh, who I worked with um, there. I worked for Goldman Sachs uh, for about a year and a half um, with this great group of people. Um, they were so fantastic. And, you know, like you're sitting there, you're working, you know, and there are no jobs. So then you sit there and you work on your script. Yeah. Um, so I ran into one of the guys who I worked with there, um, um, John Reynolds. Who is now a writer on um on uh oh god uh the Scottish guy. <laughs> wow, I know his name and I'm like I've gotten so bad with names. Um late night with uh, oh, Craig Ferguson. Craig Ferguson. Yeah, he's a writer for Ferguson. Okay. And and my girlfriend works uh for CBS and uh and she works at uh in TV City, and so I went to go pick her up one night and like I see John in the hallway. <laughs> I'm like, holy crap, <laughs> like Long way since yeah. Goldman Sachs. Um, and every so often, like, I'll see one of the actors that I work with will pop up, like, on a thing. And I'll be like, yeah. oh, hey, look. Um, and that was cool. Um, and so for a few years, I kind of, like, bummed around in this sort of weird little underbelly of, of Wall Street. Um, working these, like, mindless jobs. And it was like, and then we all, like, hated it. But it was better than waiting tables. Yeah. Um, that, was, that was all right. Um, I can't really remember, like, how did I get out of that? Oh, um, you were asking me, like, were computers happening? So a couple years into were this. Were they happening? Yeah, they were happening. <laughs> so we get to, like, so I moved back to New York in 96, 97. A um, couple of years later, my sister graduates college, moves back to New York and starts working for an internet company. And this is now like, we're like 98, 99, where like the boom is starting to happen. Yeah. She got me a job at this internet company and they were like, we've got a streaming media department. Do you know how to do that? I was like, no, but I went to film school. They're like, great. Come here, sit down. That's how you do it. Good. So I worked for this. I started working for an internet company and so I streaming became with a, quotes at yeah. the time, dial up. Yeah. Yeah, it was horrible. It was like tiny and like these like first live webcasts and everything yeah. looked terrible and they were like the size of a postage stamp. Um, but, you know, for a couple of years, it paid really well. Right. And there's all these toys around and it was it was uh, it was a good place to be for a while. Um, and then the, you know, dot bomb happened. Um, and I got laid off from that place and 
pretty quickly found a, a job at another internet company, another video compression company called Onto, um, that was in downtown uh, New York. Started working there in uh, June, July of 2001. Okay. Um, it was 10 blocks away from the World Trade Center. Wow. I was in the subway. I was in the Chamber Street subway station uh, on my way to work when the first plane went in. Wow. And... Yeah, they let people was, off, or were you stuck on the? No, I, we didn't even know at the time. Like they're yeah. like, like like nothing had happened. They yeah, let you couldn't off, really tell. And, and then got off at a stop north and kind of like walked out. And it's funny because I'd gotten laid off from the other job when when they laid everyone off, but I was going to the same subway stop to get to work, and so I ran into a guy who I used to work with there. So we're like sitting there, like talking on the corner. Oh, how's how are you doing? How are things yeah. over there? What are you up to? completely oblivious to the fact that everyone's like running around us like what the hell's going on so finally we sort of like go our separate ways i walk up to the corner i see everyone sort of like looking downtown i go and i look up and there's the the north tower with a big hole in it and there's this one like bike messenger and he's like oh man i saw the whole thing and like in that way that you're like are you like a high All right or yeah. what? um and then uh so we sat there like looking at it going, I can't process this. Um, yeah. And so I was like, I guess I'll just keep going to work. And so I'm walking to the office and I heard the second one go in, but there was a building in between. So I couldn't see anything. By the time I got to the corner, it was all smoke. Yeah. And so we're like, I think 10 or 15 blocks away where everyone's sort of like milling around our building, not really knowing what to do. And then the towers start collapsing and all of a sudden we're like, we are getting the fuck out of here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and then had to walk, uh, back uptown, back to my, uh, back to my apartment. And it was oh, a few months after that, that we were like, maybe we should leave. Maybe <laughs> it's time to go. Yeah. Um, Cause it was a sense of like New York in the late nineties. That was, there was this energy. It was like a moment, Yeah. yeah. you know, this special moment in time and it was over and like, it just felt wrong to try and recapture it so in 2002 we moved to la hmm. and so during that time in the 90s you're you're continuing to write you're continuing to continuing to write and continuing to do theater because it's cheaper yeah um write theater yeah continuing to write theater produce and direct theater because you know, again it's like i want to do this thing and like and what is that i'm curious in the theater world i'm not super familiar with it is it in the case of you sort of the indie you doing yeah. your own thing is it finding like black boxes and things it's like finding that black or boxes it... and like you know hooking up with people who have black box theaters okay. and and are looking for shows looking or for content. shows or like you're four walling the equivalent of four walling you're renting a theater for a mm -hmm. weekend and dragooning your friends and family to come see your three shows um <laughs> excuse me yeah so you know and but it's one of those things where like you keep trying to get together with people to like oh we're gonna form a theater company and then like there are five of you but only you, you want to actually do the work and, yeah like so it's hard to get anything done and that happens over and over and over again um and are you what kind of i mean in the theater space what kind of stuff are you writing is it um so the first thing that i wrote was this orson welles thing was okay, this orson right. welles short play um, so like, I think, God, I put together a group with some friends and we like produced an evening of like one acts. And so like I wrote and directed that one. I directed another one that, that we'd found and other people like wrote or staged stuff. 
Um, and we did that a couple, like we did that. And then like my Orson Welles things was, was invited to be restaged at another theater. So we did a second version of that. Um, and then people I knew were forming a theater company and they asked me to write a play. And so I started writing this play and, um, while I was writing it, I heard an audio production of the Wallace Shawn play, The Designated Mourner, for the first time. This has since become like my favorite play. Okay. It's a monologue play. So it's three characters. One character speaks 90% of the lines directly to the audience. The other two characters speak directly to the audience. And I got really sort of into this idea of monologue. So this play that I was going to write then all of a sudden became a monologue play. Um for those that know yeah. your future career, it's interesting yeah. how all this starts to yeah. come together in terms yeah. of where your interests are. Yeah, yeah. And so these... these we've heard these, one facet in terms yeah. of the, the actual content, and we've heard now the other in yeah. terms of the method of delivery. I am really intrigued by by this sort of, this format, this sort of at once really psychologically intimate, but also very kind of artificial. Mm-hmm. And I really like the sort of the, the play between those two. Um, that play didn't really come out very well, but you know, I'm just trying stuff. Yeah. Um, it's all an experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was around the time that, that we moved to LA, but I remember there was a moment like, Oh, but in the thing in the middle that I'm skipping over is, so we did the two versions of the Orson Welles stage play. And then I made a short film of it and, you know, self-funded, this is also the mid to late nineties when like everyone's like, oh, just get credit cards, put on the credit card, it'll yeah, be fine. Yeah. Shot on film, I assume. What a shot on sixteen. <laughs> God, they were still we were right before the digital cameras were like decent, decent. enough. To, yeah, yeah. Like I remember, I was still going to like things where they're like, look, here's what we shot on this digital camera. It almost kind of looks like a thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and it was like not quite there yet. So we shot on 16. It was so expensive. It was so hard. Um, but I made this short film, this 20-minute um, film called Orson Welles Sells the Soul to the Devil. Um, because I was working at an internet company that did streaming media, I got it up online. I got it in a couple of like like iFilm like, like oh, websites. Yeah, um, it won a couple of Adam awards. Films, yeah, like Adam Films was just starting. Uh, I was able to get a couple of awards with it, um, and uh, and that was really cool. But it was also the moment where I was like, I don't know if I can do this again. I don't know if I can direct. Yeah, and I think part of it is also because I was the director and the producer. Yeah, it's and a lot it was in money. that capacity, I and mean, you're picking up equipment yourself, and it's yeah. not this like, oh, I'm taking a ride in a town car to set. Yeah, it was not, you know, that and everything's sort of ready to go. Yeah, right. Which was... I think is where a lot of people think. Yeah. It is or gets to. Yeah. And it's, of course, obnoxious when you're at an early stage and yeah. you're coming into it like that. And so that Orson Welles short film is the last time I was on a set that I would say I was nominally sort of in control of or <laughs> nominally one of the heads of until Welcome to Sanditon. Hmm. Like, it wow. had been a really, really long time. And I had, after, after that Orson Welles short film, I, I reached the point where I was like, I think I want to focus on writing for a while because it's cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> and I can like, and I, and I reached the point where I didn't want to be constrained by what I could physically, what, what I had to produce. Yeah. Like I started thinking bigger and I didn't want to, I wanted to be able to explore 
stuff that I didn't necessarily have to think about how I was going to pay for shooting at. Yeah. And so I started taking like a screenwriting class at Gotham Writers Workshop um, with actually I, with a guy with a really great teacher um, who has now had his second or third feature um, at like Toronto. Wow. Um, his, second, his second feature came out this year and I'm blanking on the name of it, but it starred Jerry Lewis. Like it was the Jerry, oh, like, really? like Jerry Lewis, like came out of like his hiding to do this the guy's name is Daniel Noah. He was a fantastic teacher. Um, really great guy. I haven't actually talked to him in years, but, but we're like Facebook connected. And yeah. so like, he's like working with Elijah Wood. They have a company together and he's got a, a, a film with David Morse that just played Toronto this year. And he's, he's doing really, really well. And every yeah. time I see that, I'm like, cool. I took a class with him. He was awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I should, I should give him a call yeah back with yeah um but yeah so i started thinking more sure about he's staring writing. at your emmy going like hey <laughs> that kid was in my class yeah <laughs> hopefully um so yeah so so i started really thinking about writing as opposed to you know well, worrying about all the other stuff yes please more code to run please yeah so moved out here to LA, um, but actually really moved didn't move out here with the intention of getting into the business. It okay. was really more about needed a change of scenery. Uh-huh. Um, Had you been since, to LA before? Or was it really well, like? Um... So I was I was living with a, a woman who was my fiance at the time, and we later were married, and then very shortly thereafter got divorced. Um, but we were living together. And right after, uh, and, and we were pl- we were living in Manhattan, and we were planning on moving to suburban New Jersey. Um, found an apartment, put the deposit in. Um, 9-11 happened. Uh, two weeks after that, we flew out here to L.A. because the, the, the Orson Welles short film was like nominated for some stuff. Came out to L.A., had a fantastic time, went out to Joshua Tree for a couple of days, like drove through Arizona, Hmm. and we're standing in the Tucson Desert Museum in Tucson, and we're like, this has been a really, really wonderful trip, and maybe we should consider starting to think about whether or not we might want to move out west. And as we're having the conversation, her phone rings, and the apartment in New Jersey had fallen through. And we were like, well, that seems to be the universe sort of giving it's us a big quite sort a sign. Of sign. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and this is, this is something I don't really talk about a whole lot, but for a long time while I lived in New York and, and then for the first few years I was here in LA, I, I was not in the best of health. Um, I had a really bad chronic pain problems. Um, and one of the reasons we moved to LA was because of that was for climate, uh, a climate change, lifestyle change, lifestyle change, to to live in a place where I didn't have to walk all day long because yeah. there were there were times where like I I walked I would walk two blocks from my apartment and then get in a cab and go home because yeah. it and you know well and the thing too yeah. is whether this was a part of it or not but you know one of the things I found living in New York I went to college in New York so I lived, mm-hmm. was there for. Four years, and I would go away. You know, I'd go home in the summer to Seattle, and I'd come back to, to New York for the the winters. And I loved the city. I really enjoyed my time there. But what I found was, 
and this was 2003 mm-hmm. through or 2002 through 2006 what i found was there's new york has this like energy that you, you can't up. escape yeah like it's just there and once mm-hmm. you're in the city it's just is it's coursing through you yeah. and you can't get away from it and yeah. i would find that i would you know, it's it's the thing that sort of propels the New Yorkers just down the sidewalks mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And I would yeah. find that I'd get back to Seattle for either the Christmas break or or in the summer, and it just would, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just I'd sit here and I'd be like, I don't hear anything, <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. so I found that as much as I love that, there's a there's almost a stress that comes with it, you know, that yeah. sort of really gets into you, and you either thrive with it and it's sort of your thing and it's the way you live or it's like i mean i'm a west coast kid so yeah. like yeah i was I like mean, i liked it i'm glad yeah. i know the city california's i mean i grew up outside place. of new york i was in new york all the time when i was growing up and even for me it took about a year of living in this city to sort of get up to that pace yeah and and it was just relentless and so for whatever reason like it's, it's hard it's like a hard yeah experience yeah. yeah you know even if you're doing well there's just a yeah you know yeah getting around and taking the subway you're like doing... i was I, I was back in new york last year uh working a freelance job that i had to go to new york for about a, a month about three three or four weeks last december and it was i mean i was i had a great time and i'm glad i did it but there were a couple of like like the fifth or sixth day i was like okay Seriously? Yeah. Like, wow. Like, how did I do this for yeah. like six years? Like, holy crap. Right. Like, rained every day. <laughs> Cold. It yeah. Was windy. It was like, oh my God, what the hell? Um, yeah. And so you then find yourself, you know. So find myself here find yourself in here LA. And, you know, I, I was thinking about writing. I was doing a lot of writing. But I wasn't really like, it wasn't with the idea of, oh, I'm going to break in. Yeah. It was like, this is just what I kind of felt I like I needed to do write. and to figure out how to do and to figure out like, is this like, can I do this? Yeah. Um, and you know, working on stuff and trying some things and, and, um, around the time that my marriage was ending, um, I, I, you know, just started to think about, well, I, I kind of need to get serious about this. I kind of need to like, like, I want to do more. Like, like I, I really do want to do more. Yeah. Um, and so I started going to a place in Santa Monica called the Writer's Boot Camp. Um, which is a fairly well-known sort of writing program here. Um, and I fr- was introduced to a friend of a friend was um, was going there and he was telling me about it. And it was sort of the perfect thing for me at the perfect time. Partially because I didn't pay for it. Um, <laughs> that helps. I brokered a deal where, like, I basically worked as their sysadmin okay. for, you know, a certain period of time in exchange for free tuition and a two-year writing program. Um, and it was one of those things where, like, it came along at just the right time. It was a structured kind of environment for me to start, you know, pouring these ideas that I had into into putting it in shape. Um and it was here that I wrote, um, I wrote two, I wrote a, the full length play version of the Orson Welles story. I wrote the first draft of the Coriolanus screenplay and three TV specs. Hmm. Um, and that was and that's over the course first, of two years, oh, two years. Wow. Yeah. 
And that was sort of my sort of first kind of foot in the world of like, no, this is like actually what you have to do to like, yeah. to work. Um, and I really enjoyed writing the TV specs and I, I haven't really done too many more of them just because I, I just haven't made the time to. Yeah. Um, and it just at some point in the past few years, it seemed like we were past that. Right. Like, like nobody wanted that anymore. So yeah. I was like, all right, fine. Um, <laughs> but I remember writing, I wrote a Rescue Me and I wrote, um, I wrote a Grey's Anatomy because it was, I think, like the first or second year of Grey's Anatomy. Um, and I wrote a Veronica Mars. And that, that was my favorite. I really, yeah. really liked the Veronica Mars um, one that I did. That was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And so I sort of came out of this program like totally amped up and like, yes, new stuff. And like kept working on this Coriolina screenplay. Um, I'd gotten a job. You know, it's one of those things. I have been so lucky. Like, I have been so fortunate to just be in the random right place at the right time. Or, you know, just something people comes through in the right doing way something or... for me just because for no reason. Yeah. So a really, really big thing around that time was um, I started writing for a blog. Um, there was this blog in town called blogging.la. It was a city blog uh, just about life in L.A. I had a bunch of different writers who wrote for it. And I really liked the site. And they had been around for a while, for a few months, maybe six months or so. And they were like, hey, we're putting out a call for new writers. And I was like, oh, I should do that. But uh, do I want to? And like, you know, I'm sitting there like second guessing myself. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Writing the pro and con list. And I was like, you know what? Just, 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 just do it. Just yeah. like, what do you have to just... I, and without thinking too much about it, I just wrote a quick email like, I'd love to, you know, like write for the site. You know, that'd be great. Sent it off. And they they brought me on, like with a group of other sort of, uh, a whole group of new writers. And hmm. that sort of became my entree into the world of the web. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and when, this is when this is, this is like 2006, okay. 2005, maybe, maybe even earlier, maybe 2004. I don't know. God, I haven't really thought about that in a while. Um, and so, yeah, so I start like meeting these people who write for the site. Really, some really wonderful people. Will Wheaton was writing for the site around then. Um, the two founders of the site, uh, Sean Bonner and Jason DiFilippo, hmm. who were relatively well known in the in the inter in internet circles at yeah. that time. And I'm like, I don't really know, but you know. I started like, you know, going to events that they would put together, meeting a bunch of people, meeting these sort of people in LA who were in this sort of nascent blogger scene. And so, so going back to like I was saying, I, I'm really lucky. Um, I'm temping. I'm like trying to get temp jobs out here. I'm trying yeah. to get like, like uh, streaming media jobs like I had in New York and I can't find any. So I'm, I'm falling back on, on doing PowerPoint which I hate, but, you know, you can get work doing that. And I'm doing that, and I'm doing temp gigs here and there and whatever, and I got a temp gig at um, at a Disney Channel. And so I'm there, and I'm, like, doing my thing. I'm like, oh, you know, usually I, I bring my lunch, but, like, this day I forgot to bring my lunch. So, you know what, I'm going to go downstairs, I'm going to get lunch. Get in the elevator, go down. In the lobby... Coming out of the other elevator, I bump into a guy who I've met at one of these blogger meetups. He's like, oh, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, I'm working a temp job. 
what are you doing here? Oh, I'm the vice president in charge of digital media. <laughs> um, really? <laughs> wow, I used to do that. Yeah. He gives me a tour. I give him my resume. A couple of months later, he hires me to start building what becomes Disney Channel Online. Wow. Um, and I worked for Disney for six years. Like, and it was the first job I'd had in LA that actually paid decently and right. like enabled me to climb out of debt, enabled me to sort of, you know, put stuff back together after, after the divorce um, and really sort of became a base uh, of operations for me for a long time. And like, if I'd not gone to lunch at that moment, yeah. Not bumped or into her, your lunch or like, who knows? The, like, yeah. like the whole, the whole trajectory of my life would have been different. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's there. always fun to think back on those yeah. moments. And it's yeah. weird because you see how, how incredibly tight those yeah. moments are. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know? just like, it's amazing. And how precise it is in a way too. Totally. You're just like, this is just like, how did this happen? Yeah. How did this, how did this happen? Like, you know, you just, you get really, really lucky. And, and Disney took you up through where? Um, I worked for Disney for six years, six and a half years. Um, and that was the last um, not creative job I had. Right. Um, because while I was working at Disney, Disney, Disney was that perfect prototypical, like, do a thing during the day that you're not really, really invested in so you can put your creative energies in something else. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blogging for Blogging.LA. I'm, like, meeting these people in the, in the, in the L.A. sort of blogging scene, the L.A. tech scene. Um, and then I got exposed to this event. I haven't had one in a while, which is really kind of sad, but it's an event called Bar Camp. Okay. Um, Bar Camp is a, it's what they used to call an unconference, where basically the organizers would get a space for a day or two, usually, you know, two days over a weekend, a bunch of different rooms to speak in, put together a grid of, you know, here are the slots, here are the speaking slots, here are the times, here are the rooms. The grid is completely empty. And everyone who shows up on the morning, the first morning, gets to decide, gets to pick a slot to give a talk or a demonstration or a presentation about whatever they want to give a presentation about. Almost usually tech-based, but yeah. not always. And so I started going to this and like seeing all these really creative, really smart people. It was really inspiring. Um, and so bar camp was actually where I, so I had like my, my just met big giant manifesto day and yeah. like started working on that first project and bar camp was where I unveiled it. And I was like, I don't know, it's like, this is this thing I'm doing and like was really prepared for people to be like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Like I don't get this. And the response I got was so supportive that it really sort of spurred me on. And, and so, you know, things like. Bar camp and things like the, the the blogging scene taught me at a very crucial moment how important community is, yeah. um, especially when you're in new media, especially when you're trying to invent stuff, and especially when there's no roadmap for where you're going. Having a community that you know will embrace you and support you and 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 you know give you positive feedback is so crucial. Yeah. Um, and so for the next couple of next year or so, like each bar camp, I, that would be my target for the next project. And I would sort of first unveil it there and then put it live online. Um, and so I'm going to bar camp. 
I'm working at Disney. I'm working on these projects. There's uh, so I worked at the Disney Channel building in Burbank, and there's a Starbucks in the lobby there. And so like I would go before work, and I'd sit there and get my coffee and and write, and I'd take my laptop down there at lunch and I'd write, and you know, um, and I just did that a lot for six <laughs> years. Yeah, just like cranking on stuff, and 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 it's in that Starbucks where I wrote that manifesto thing. Like okay. like that's where it happened. Um, and, um, that took me through 2010, I think. Um, and by then I had put out a bunch of these projects. I had started speaking at conferences, um, and I got offered a job to go work for a company called Fourth Wall Studios. And... Fourth Wall Studios was comprised of... So we got to back up here a little bit. We talked a little bit about alternate reality games at the beginning. Right. And so The Beast happens that's um, produced by a unit within Microsoft. And then they left Microsoft and formed their own company with a couple of other people. And that company was called 42 Entertainment. And 42 Entertainment over the next few years does the best projects in this field they did a thing called i love bees which was a campaign for halo 2 that was amazing um they did um something for nine inch nails called year zero which was a an alternate reality game fused with an album where there was like no difference between the marketing and the, the the music um and then their biggest and most famous one is they did a campaign for the dark knight called why so serious that involved like you running around and like doing errands for the Joker and stuff yeah. and like Harvey Dent campaign vans going around. It was a mammoth thing. Um, so 42 did some really, really amazing stuff. Um, most of what they did was funded by marketing money. And so there was this sort of prevailing notion held by some people in this world and um, that we had to get away from that. That marketing, like marketing is great and marketing is where the money is, but if we stay doing marketing projects, then this stuff will only ever exist to serve someone else's needs. Yeah. And we need to figure out how to create original content. Original content. And at that time, strangely enough, I was one of the few people in this world that was creating original content because I kept it so small that I could execute it myself yeah. and I didn't need to pay me or anybody else to just make something happen. So I'm just like making projects and making projects and finishing them and putting them out there and then moving on to the next one. So a couple of the people from 42 left and they formed their own company called Fourth Wall Studios. And the goal was, you know, eventually to get to make original content in this kind of space that is at this point been saddled or 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 knocked into the realm of of using the term transmedia um and i did some freelance work for them while i was uh still working at disney um and they in 2009 2010 got an enormous investment mm-hmm and decided to scale up to form a studio where they could produce original content um, on their own. And they asked me to join them. And so I left Disney to go work at Fourth Wall 
um, January, January, 2010, I think it was. Mm. Um, and it was, it was a ride. Um, we started in January, 2010 with like eight people. Um, it, we grew really, really fast, probably about 60 or 70. Wow. Um, and on the Monday after Thanksgiving last year, um, at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, um, we were told that the company was over at 6 p.m., hmm. that the investor had pulled his money, and they we were done, and there was no severance, and Jeez. we were just, it was over. It was almost a year ago, exactly. Did um, you guys see that coming? Did you know... We knew that or was we knew the stuff was happening. Was really like a sudden. It was really sudden. Mm-hmm. It was really sudden, um, and it was kind of ridiculous because we had just won an Emmy two months before. Yeah. Um, so Fourth Wall pioneered this. Fourth Wall built this platform um, called Rides.tv, and what this would do is it would synchronize web video with phone calls and emails and text messages. Um, and so we built the platform and then we built content for this platform and we did a show that, uh, that I worked on. Um, uh, I did a lot of the initial sort of world building and Bible creation and then kind of did a lot of the social media kind of marketing around it. Um, so we did this show called Dirty Work. It was three episodes of uh, following a, a late night uh, crime scene cleanup crew in LA hmm. and all the wacky stuff yeah. that they get into. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, it looked really great. Spent a lot of money on it. Um, and it won an Emmy for uh, inter- for original interactive content hmm. last year. Um, and that was in September and in November we were out of business. Right. Um, so yeah, it was it was kind of an intense couple of years. And so... As you, so you mentioned that of the five projects that you wanted to do, one of them, one that you had been trying to put together was a modern adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Yes. And had actually done, you'd actually done work. So I've done it. a lot of work on that. I've done a lot of research, a lot of reading. I love doing, I do a lot of research on right. projects that, that I'm doing. And, and so, so what's curious is right. not so much that you just had the idea and then eventually got yeah. to where you got to. It was that you had actually in a way, created the project on your own. I developed a lot of it. I yeah. developed large portions of it, but it was still missing this sort of central engine, right. this central conceit um, to make it all work. And I even was pitching it at fourth wall internally, like we should do this. And, yeah. and, and it wasn't really getting much traction. And then probably last uh, January, two Januarys ago, um, get an email from a friend. It's an email to me and to Bernie, Bernie Sue. And it's like, Jay, Bernie's doing a Pride and Prejudice thing. You should talk to him. Bernie, Jay's been working on a Pride and Prejudice thing. You should talk to him. <laughs> and, and Bernie and I had, had talked a few years previous um, about working on, he had done a, uh, a series called Compulsions yep. that was really successful. And we had had a couple of conversations early on about me working on that and doing kind of like a social media story component to it, which, and it didn't work out for a variety of reasons. Um, but, but I knew Bernie from, from that and from around and just seeing him at at things. Um, and I had seen him 
at a conference in 2011, there was a conference in San Francisco called Story World that was about transmedia storytelling. And I saw him there and, and we had a discussion in the lobby where he was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, I have so many ideas. Like, this is like, you, like he was really jazzed yeah. by everything we were talking about. And so we sat down, he, he laid out, you know, what they were doing with Lizzie Bennett Diaries. It was still really early. They'd shot the like test episodes, but not the first bunch of real episodes. I think they had the first couple of months of scripts. Um, they'd cast the first round, um, but they still had, and they had some ideas about um, what to do with the transmedia stuff. Um, but he was really looking for someone to kind of take that world and run with it. Yeah. And it was just, it was sort of like tailor made. Right. And, and, and I was like, I was a little nervous about whether or not I should even be doing it because I was still working at fourth wall studios and it may not actually be kosher (laughs) working on this. So I sort of insisted that he come in and meet, have a meeting at fourth wall and sort of tell him about the project and see if fourth wall wanted to be involved and fourth wall passed on it. Where they were like, well, it sounds interesting, but we would need to bring it in house and develop it for six months. And Bernie was like, no, yeah, <laughs> no, thank you. But then I was like, all right, well, I've kind of done my due diligence and like, okay, but I still didn't want to, I didn't want to trumpet too loudly yeah. that I was working on it just because I didn't want to draw any unwanted attention to that fact. But so I started working on the project and, and, but the thing that I said to Bernie in that first meeting was like, this is what I'm interested in. Like, Yes, I will totally like do all of this, like like take all this transmedia stuff on and run with it. Um, I want the title of transmedia producer because at that point the PGA had just announced that that was a credit that they were accepting, and I was yeah. like, I want a transmedia producer credit so I can get into the guild, and I want to be on the writing staff because I need to be in that room with everyone else breaking story. So all of this social stuff is not ancillary yeah. that it, it it fits with everything else and he was like sure great fine um i didn't write any episodes for the first six months though because that was part of my like well i don't want to like draw too much attention so i yeah. will sit in the room with everyone else and help break story but i'm not going to write any episodes yet right um um and so but i remember like one of the early script meetings um, they were like, they're like, yeah, we still haven't figured out like what we're going to do about Lydia and, and her downfall. And I was like, oh, I got that for you. It's a sex tape because that was part of what I had developed. Right. And, and so basically what I ended up doing was strip mining the project, the version of the project that I developed hmm. for anything that would fit. And a right. lot of it, like, and a lot of it didn't fit, but yeah. there were things that, that I'd come up with that you know, fit in this world. This world was very different. It's a very different version of, of the world than the one that I was putting together, but there were things that we could use. Yeah. And so at some point I was like, you know what? This is the chance to do it. So I better put everything into this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I started strip mining that that project for Lizzie Bennett. And, you know, I give I give Bernie and Hank a world of credit because they had the thing that I was missing, uh, which was, well, it's twofold. It's the vlogging, which I never would have thought of in a million years, but even more than that, it's costume theater. 
it's this device to allow you to see the characters that you never want to actually bring on on screen. And then when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, that's great. Like, yeah. that totally works. Um, so, yeah, it was just it was fantastic. And so at the time yeah. when you guys were starting out, was there, you know, I mean, clear, probably not. But was there any sense that maybe there was that the success that you were sort of. That eventually came from it. I mean, wild, wild success. I don't was think so. was on the horizon. No. I mean, was it? No, no. Not it tends to be that my... way. It tends to be that. I asked that. Be yeah. you know, everyone asked that, and yeah. clearly it wasn't. But like, it just it's, it's interesting that it kind of tends to be that way. It starts out as a small thing. Yeah. Who knows if anyone's going to pay any attention to it? And from my but perspective, I just spent. We think there's something. Yeah. I just spent three years being told over and over again, nobody wants to see this. Yeah. There's no market for this. There's no audience for this. And that was girls still... Don't use the internet. Yeah, girls don't use the internet. <laughs> and so that was still like a little bit in the back of my mind. Like, all right, well, we'll try it. We'll see what happens. Yeah. You know, it's this just weird little hybrid web... It's a web series, but it's a vlog. And I'm like, who knows? And things... I don't, I don't know. We'll see what happens. You know, it'll be something. Yeah. Um... But I remember the moment when I knew that I knew that we'd caught something and it was, it was our first big transmedia rabbit hole because it was my, that was my first pitch to Bernie was here's, here's how we handle, um, he was like, yeah, I don't, but I don't know what to do about, you know, Darcy and Bing and, and Caroline and all this stuff's going on. I'm like, okay, here's my pitch. Like we have them tweeting at each other from the very beginning, but we don't tell anyone they're there. And then after at the whenever we stage the 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 event where they first meet each other we have jane follow bing and bing follow jane on twitter and that's how they find out that bing exists and they find his twitter account and from there they find the darcy and the caroline accounts and so i'd set this up on um like gmail accounts for all of these um for all of these uh twitter accounts and so i'm sitting there on on a sunday and I'm watching the notifications roll in. And I'm watching, like, just acres and acres of these, like, you know, now following, like, Bing Lee. Now yeah. following Caroline Lee. Now following William Darcy. Like, over and over and over. Like, all afternoon long. All evening long. It's getting up to, like, thousands and thousands of notifications. And I was like, wow. This, they really like this. This yeah. really worked. Like, this worked better than I ever thought it would. <laughs> like, huh. Okay, and that moment really sort of felt like, and like looking at the responses to that, like that felt like the moment when the audience was like, "Oh, this is so much bigger than we thought it was." Yeah, and and you know, rabbit hole is that term that gets used, and and you know, it's one of the reasons I like it a lot is because you really have that feeling of tumbling, of this sort of accelerating pull of gravity on you into this story world and and you know once you get one of those right yeah it gets really addicting and so you <laughs> yeah. like want to build bigger ones and bigger ones um yeah and so I, that was the moment where i was like huh wow i think we, I think we may have something here yeah yeah this is taken off mm -hmm. so you then write some episodes yeah um well there's there's Please. another another important thing i should i should I should make sure I say is that, you know, pretty early on, you know, there was, there was no money. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, 
they were like, well, we can afford to give you like this, like small kind of like stipend per month. And I was like, you know what? Don't use that money to hire somebody to help me because we'd come up with this idea of using of Gigi, of having the Gigi character who isn't going to appear in the show until the 10th month. Mm-hmm. But we were going to start posting content from her right away and have it just be the music that she's listening to. And so I kind of started her account and I like posted a couple of songs and it became very apparent to me that I did not know what music <laughs> a 20 year old girl who was depressed would listen to. And I was like, it's like the who I'm like, you leave it to whatever. me. It's like <laughs> Bell and Sebastian. And it's like, that's not right. Um, like she's getting very goth now. Like, yeah. um, like that's just not right. So I, we need somebody who speaks that language yeah. and who can do that. And that's how we got Alexandra hmm. was, she was a, a friend of a friend and she'd been involved uh, in one of the projects I'd done before one of the collaborative experiments that kind of as a participant and um, I was like, hey, do you want to do this? And she was like, oh, my God, yes. And, you know, I was like, great. How much, in the, how much in the early, how much was really thought out in the early, I mean, how much, like when you came on, how yeah. much time did you really have to start? Or was it like, okay, this train's moving. I got to just sort of. It was, it was, the train was already moving. And um, we sort of kind of, you know, something that, Something that Bernie does really, really, really well. And I think it's a large part of the reason why my version of of Pride and Prejudice didn't get off the ground and his did is he is really fantastic about taking some balls and throwing them in the air and going. Hmm. And I tend to want to like plan more and have more things thought out. But this was very much a we're going like episodes are happening like it's gonna happen on this day, and because it was vlogs and because it was real time, like you just had to go. Yeah. Like and so, there were the big things, like the big rabbit holes were planned out, but a lot of the posting was ad hoc. A lot mm-hmm. of the posting was sort of in the moment, at least early on. Yeah. Um, we tried to plan more and more as we went along, but we also had a lot of latitude. So like we did a big thing on, on Thanksgiving. It was like, Caroline's going to try cooking Thanksgiving to impress Darcy. And like, I literally thought of it like the night before. And I was like, Oh, I should like do, yeah, that'd be fun. And I just kind of like wrote it out in about 15 minutes. And I sort of sent it to Bernie. I was like, I was thinking of doing this tomorrow. And he like tweaked a couple of the, the, the lines a little bit. And it was like, great, fantastic. Boom. And you know, and because we were listening to the mood of the audience and we were constantly monitoring it and we had and we had the latitude to be able to respond in the moment that enabled us to do stuff like that that enabled us to be that responsive and some of our best stuff was stuff like that Hmm. where it was like the night before we thought oh we should do this yeah like you know um or like in the moment it's just like oh yeah it should be something like that but I mean, other things were really, really heavily planned out. There's the, you know, the the San Francisco tour where, you know, it was months earlier that Bernie took a bunch of photos of Ashley up in San Francisco. And then weeks later, they got together in L.A. to shoot some more photos with Daniel. And, and you know, that had been planned out for months in advance. Um, we did the, uh, oh, what was the one I was thinking of? Um, there was the CODA 
there was the 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 postscript mm-hmm. where we were sort of reaching the end and i was like i just started having this feeling of like you know when you watch a movie of this story or any story like this there's always a wedding at the end yeah and it's a great moment of we've been through these trials it's over everyone's together everyone's happy it's this sort of like last moment to see that everyone's a unit in a good place in a good place and i was like no we don't have that we can't we don't have the budget for that yeah we can't do the how can we do something like that and so i kept like pitching sort of versions of that and and that turned into like oh they went out to a bar afterwards and we like got who was available and like shot some photos and like turned it into this thing yeah and and I thought it would be nice, but I, it, it worked a lot better, a lot better than I ever thought it would. Nice. Yeah. So then, you know, you you start off on this scrappy little production. Yeah. Called Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Yeah. A year later, it ends. Yeah. You produce Sanditon. Executive yes. produce Sanditon. Yes. Create it. So Sanditon happened because we were at the we were at the party at. Um, what's trending in Hollywood the Friday before the streaming awards. And, you know, there had been for a long time, the plan had been Lizzie Bennett ends a second show. Like, like it was, it was going to be Emma. Then for a while, Bernie was being cagey about maybe, maybe being something else, but then it went back to being Emma. Yeah. But we were at the party and he was like, it's going to take me some time to develop it and Lizzie's going to end and we can't tell this audience, okay, go away and come back in six months when we're ready for you. We need to have something that, that is, you know, that fridge space. We need something to bridge the end of this show to the other one. And I was like, well, actually that conversation had happened like the day before. And, and I'd gone home and I'd started like looking at stuff and I'd, I'd found Sanditon and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like, it's unfinished. And I had the idea of, like, we can let the audience finish it. Right. And so, like, we're letting, we're literally at this party, and he, like, starts saying, oh, we, you know, we have to figure out what we're going to do. And I was like, I have a pitch for you. And I, I pitched Sanditon right there on the roof deck. And he was like, I love it. It's great. I'm going to talk to Decca and Hank, like, on Monday. He talked to Decca and Hank on Monday. Monday, they greenlit it in the room. And on Tuesday, we had a writer's meeting, and... um I think it was that Tuesday, and Bernie was like, "So we're going to do Sanditon, but I'm going to be too busy to um, to run it. So I need somebody to to step up and run it." And I kind of like looked around, and I was like, "Well, I kind of want to do it, but I should let like somebody else maybe someone else say something first. To be to be <laughs> honest, I I thought Margaret should do it because right. she'd been the co exec on on Lizzie, and I sort of felt like it was her place to yeah. like step up next, but. She didn't say anything in the room. And so I went home. This was the next Friday. So, like, I went home and I'm, like, sitting there this weekend going, over the weekend going, I should have said something because I need to get back on a set. I haven't been on a set since the Orson Welles short film. I need to get back on a set. I need to get my feet back into that. And so on Monday, I, I, I called Bernie or I emailed Bernie and I said, hey, look, so if nobody has said anything yet, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And he was like, actually, Margaret t- came and talked to me also afterwards. So we decided very quickly that, like, great, we'll do it together. Like, that's fantastic. It's a perfect solution. Um, 
Yeah. And so we were like, all right, I guess we're going to do another show now. And yeah. it just, it came together really, really, really fast. Um, and because all of a sudden we're like, okay, we're doing a show. We need to have auditions next week. Yeah. So we need scripts. We're like, we don't even know what the story is yet. Like, yeah. like it happened really fast. Um, yeah. And, but it was a lot of fun. And like, um, we had a, you know, a couple of script meetings. We banged some stuff out. Um, we had this, stru- this once a week structure that we were going to do. Then the Kickstarter happened. <laughs> <laughs> then the Kickstarter happened and we're watching the Kickstarter and we're watching Hank say, and we're going to be- use the money to make a bigger Sanditon. And Margaret and I look at each other and we're like, we are? Yeah. Huh. Okay. What does that mean? What does he mean by bigger? Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So then we sort of were approached by, um, and I've, I've mentioned this online in a couple of places that I didn't want to talk about this until after the show is over, but we were approached by a brand who, who wanted to know if we could make more episodes. And so we got some money to make more episodes and that's where the ice cream videos came in. But then we're like, all right, well now we've got one, we've got two videos a week, some weeks, but only one, the other ones yeah. we need something else to fit there. And so we came up with the idea of the UGC videos um, which were very divisive. <laughs> um, we learned a lot from that show. Yeah. <laughs> I learned a lot from that show. Um, but, uh, um, it was a lot of fun and I, I really, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the interactive parts of it. I enjoyed the, the user generated content parts of it. I'd been really influenced by, and you know, this is, this is funny actually. I had been, when I'd been in New York and, um, in uh, uh, last fall, for uh, before Fourth Wall went down, we had gone. Um, we'd gone to New York Comic Con and did a panel there. And while I was there, I saw a play called Sleep No More, mm-hmm. um, which is an immersive theater um, uh, production by a company called Punch Drunk that's been running in New York for a couple of years. And I'd heard a lot about it, um, and so I went and I saw it, and it blew me away. Blew me away. I just and it was. The really amazing thing about it was all of these ideas that I had started exploring when I was studying theater, when I was producing theater, that it sort of led me off the theater track towards film and then new media. A lot of those ideas were in this theater piece, and it was sort of felt like going full circle. Um, the way that this show works is it's uh, it's set in this five-story warehouse space that has been um, decorated to look like a derelict hotel from the 1930s on parts of it. In other parts of it, there's like a sanatorium, there's a forest, there's a graveyard, there's like like all of these different really incredible spaces. And you go, as an audience member, you go and you wear a mask. And you are set free in this space. And for the duration of the show, you can walk around and see whatever you want to see. You can follow an actor. You can just explore the different rooms. And the way it works, because of that, nobody ever has the same experience. And you never see the same show twice. I've seen it now four times. Every time is like wildly different. Because you have to choose what part of this enormous world you are going to experience. And so I saw that knocked me back i was just 
just beside myself with excitement. And that was one of the design principles that went into Welcome to Sanditon. Like that's where the idea came from of, you know, let's see if we can make a world that's so big, you can't see it all by design. And what we found out is that a large portion of the audience really didn't want that. Yeah. Um, and, and that was one of the hardest parts of the show for me because I thought that was so cool and I really enjoyed that as an audience member and, and to, to discover that large portions of the audience did not share that was, was opening. Um, definitely, definitely learned a lot and we could have done a whole lot different in the messaging around that. I think, um, I don't know. I mean. We tried stuff. Some of it worked. Some of it didn't. You Ten, learn. You learn, and you move on. It's to the an experiment. One. The web. The web space is an experiment, and that's one of the things is you're able to sort yeah. of play in that world without yeah. the risk that comes from a two hundred yeah. million dollar movie. Yes. You know, and sometimes yeah. it'll do well. And I think it. I think that anything following Lizzie Bennett, which was just in a large way so unexpected and, that's and the, unpredictable, in a that's way. the dirty little secret of Sanditon is that we always knew that the second show was going to have a backlash. Yeah. And so we intentionally decided to make something that was a little weird and a little out there and a little different because we knew that no matter what we did, yeah, if it's going to happen anyway, it was going to, it was going to get, it was going to be like, Oh, this isn't Lizzie. This is yeah. not the same. I don't like this. We, we were prepared for that. We knew that was coming. Yeah. Um, and so we're like, well, if that's going to happen anyway, Let's steer into it. And so to a certain extent, a lot of the interactivity and a lot of the sort of experimental stuff in Sanditon was designed to take that bullet. Yeah. Um, didn't mean we enjoyed yeah. <laughs> a lot you of the process. Hope success, so we always hope yeah. that, you know, everyone loves it. But, yeah. but you know what? Not everyone loved Lizzie Bennett. So, yeah. you know. And, 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 you know, we got a lot of really, I learned a lot of really great things. I learned a lot of really valuable lessons that are going to help inform the next project, yeah. which which I'm really, really thankful for. Um, and I got to, you know, I got to share show running duties with Margaret Dunlap, who is a fantastic collaborator. Um, and, you know, it was a great, great production staff. It was a great cast. We worked with some wonderful actors. Um, and yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was so much fun. Yeah. Would you have thought that this type of uh, media and this type of approach to media would have uh, led to the point of you holding an Emmy in your hand? So I was sort of joking pretty early on. I was like, you guys know we're going to win an Emmy for this, right? (laughs) And it was somewhat facetious, but having gone through that process the year before with fourth wall and, you know, when we were at fourth wall, I actually handled the, um, the submission process. So that's really the only reason, like, we submitted Lizzie Bennett for the Emmy was because I knew, like, how that worked. Right. And I was like, and I would, like, get the reminder email, like, oh, it's almost time to submit again. I'm like, oh, that's right. Like, we should totally do that. So I just sort of semi-jokingly was sort of like, you guys realize, like, we're totally going to win an Emmy for this. And people were like, are you on crack? Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yes, trust me. (laughs) Um, Yeah. and, And, you know, once it was clear that we were getting all this traction... And especially after the Kickstarter and the, the, you know, 
the the press that we got the week of the the 200th anniversary of of Pride and Prejudice you know we we knew that something really special was happening yeah um and we knew it was special for our audience and it I was really interested to see whether or not that would translate to the larger industry to me that's actually probably more important than winning the Emmy itself yeah is that you know, after, again, after years and years of like, what's this weird stuff you're doing? How do you monetize this? Why, you know, why don't you tell a real story? Just, you know, like, why don't you do this as a feature? Like to be able to take a project and get that kind of recognition and get that kind of acceptance from the broader industry um, is is just fantastic. Um, yeah. And it's really like, I, I I'm a... I've become a big believer in this model. I feel like, you know, having been working in this field of transmedia storytelling for a while now, um, what we've been lacking is we've been lacking the format. We've been lacking the thing that can be repeatable and that we can teach an audience how to, how to consume and that is robust enough that you can tell lots and lots of different stories. Fourth Wall attempted to do that. We tried to make a thing to make a platform that would do that. Um, and um, we had moderate success, um, but I feel like Lizzie Bennett was a much broader kind of, kind of uh, achieved a much broader success on that level. And I'm really, really committed to this idea now of telling these multi-platform stories that are stories in their own right and, and using all of these different sort of channels to tell this one cohesive long story. And that's the other thing that, that it's easy to overlook is that Lizzie Bennett was a year. It's a year long of constant storytelling that and experience yeah, for the audience. Yeah. And so it, it, it lends this sense of continuity of reality of, of continuous engagement that you know even if you go away for a few days and you come back it's still there it's still going on yeah. um and it it fosters this connection that's so powerful and and you know it's hard to do that and it becomes this really weird mix of really really big epic storytelling and also really really small intimate storytelling at the same time and i find that really really fascinating and i'm really looking forward to exploring that dynamic um over the next few projects that i'm going to do um yeah cool man yeah you can't wait to see what's next well yeah i can't <laughs> wait to see what's next too so the yeah. next the next thing is it's something that i've been brewing for a while um and you know it's sort of taken various forms up until now until after the lizzie bennett sort of experience i was like oh this That's is the way is. to do this yeah and it's a it's a modern uh, multi-platform adaptation of Hamlet um, that I've been developing for a while. Um, but after doing Lizzie Bennett and Sanditon, I've completely rebuilt it from the ground up um, using all of the stuff that we've learned on on Lizzie Bennett and on Sanditon uh, to try and like bring it up a couple of notches. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really. I, you know, I think it's interesting if you look at if you look at the distribution of who wrote what on on Lizzie Bennett and on Sanditon. My episodes tended to be the heavier ones. My episodes tended to be the more dramatic ones, and so 
I've been thinking about that a lot this week as I'm working on Hamlet because like I'm like like it's like that but like in everything yeah it's like, yeah. It's like blowing that up to like these levels of like really intense stakes. And I took the project to, I was invited to bring it to the Sundance New Frontier Story Lab last month, which was incredible. Um, and uh, me and my producer, Elizabeth Hughes, spent five days at the Sundance Resort with a team of about a dozen advisors from across lots of different parts of the industry. And they just took the project apart and put it back together and and gave us so many fantastic ideas, not the least of which was to think bigger. Hmm. And, you know, coming from this web world, you sort of, it gets easy to sort of think of, oh, it's just, you know, we're going to grab a camera, we're going to shoot it in the corner, we're going to do it as down and dirty as possible and, you know, try and do it as cheaply as possible. And there's just almost this like race to the bottom as far as like how much can you do for how little. Yeah. But you can only go so far with that. And so we, you know, wanted to make this a larger production from the beginning, but we were encouraged to make it significantly larger than than we thought. Like more money. You can so, shoot on a 65 millimeter. You were, yeah, we're going <laughs> to shoot on IMAX. <laughs> yeah. The Kenneth yeah, Branagh approach. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, so we're now in the process of sort of scaling this project up and starting to, you know, have conversations about, you know, can we, can we find backers and how does, how do you make money off of that? And how do you, you know, how do you turn this into more than anything else? I want to find a way to turn this into a scalable, repeatable model that, you know, other people can produce projects like this Yeah, that, you know, this is an adaptation. A lot of the stuff I want to do is adaptation, but I also have original stories that I want to tell using this type of format. Um, I'm in the early stages of putting together a startup to build a platform to help enable these kinds of storytelling. Um, like it's a, it's a, I feel like we've really, we found something here. There's, there's gold in these, their hills. Yeah. And, and, um i'm going to be spending a lot of time trying to find it um in the next couple of years yeah cool man yeah well thanks for coming out yeah thanks for having me this is great yeah yeah cool